Hello everybody, my name is Max Cassidy and this is Soren in the 21st. Today we're going to be continuing our discussion on works of love. If you're just joining us, I urge you to go back and listen to the previous episode because these are cumulative and so that'd be helpful. So to jump right into things, we left off with what Kierkegaard says is not love. That is, pretty much every way we look at love now, or that's portrayed in movies or social media. But it's time we take a look at what Kierkegaard says true love is, the true eternal Christian love. Now he starts out with the term he calls infinite debt. Now normally speaking, debt is not a good thing. But what we're going to see Kierkegaard do is reverse the term debt to mean something entirely different. Where traditionally you would never hear a coworker bragging about being in debt or owing someone such a huge favor that they're eternally bound to that person. It's like someone saving your life, knowing that no matter what happens to you, you'll always have this looming favor of equal or greater value of your life. Kierkegaard says that's exactly where you want to be, to owe someone an infinite debt of love. So imagine you're walking down the street on your morning walk and you're listening to your usual podcast. You're wearing your AirPods, so naturally you're completely unaware of your surroundings. When all of a sudden, a runaway ice cream truck flies down the road, you miss the screams of the people and the children's music steadily growing louder and louder, just before your life is brought to an abrupt end by an assortment of flavored dairy products, your neighbor shoves you out of the way and into safety. It doesn't take long for you to realize you were just about to be the punchline of a dark joke. From that moment on, your neighbor's loud dogs and constant attempts to make conversation with you aren't too bad of a trade-off for your life. Subsequently, you make it a point to say thank you to him, talk to him, ask him if he needs help with anything, because you realize that you owe him this infinite debt. Now Kierkegaard points out that this is how we ought to view our neighbor. In fact, the better we are at acting as though we owe everyone that same debt, the closer we are to understanding what Christian love is. But Kierkegaard doesn't finish there. He goes on to say that not only do we want to remain in this type of debt, but the method in which we obtain this type of debt is by loving others. In other words, we have to do things for others so we feel like we owe them a debt. Now you might be thinking one or all of these things. That seems backwards, that seems exhausting, or I just don't want to do that. If you're thinking this, then you have the right idea. It all comes down to this idea Kierkegaard calls reduplication. Now it's another fancy term, and all it means is it's the idea that when we love someone else, two things happen. First, being our external display of love that goes towards uplifting the other. Pretty self-explanatory. The other is the reduplicated aspect that is between us and God. Now this can best be explained in the most common misconception of Christianity, that if you've grown up in a Christian household, you've probably heard this. If you give to God, he will bless you beyond all your expectations. If you help an old lady cross the street or buy a homeless person coffee, or help us build a new worship amphitheater, you can rest easy knowing that one day you're going to get that boat, that house, that car. That is, 
If I do enough good things for other people, then God or the universe is bound to send something good in return. When I tithe, what I'm really doing is storing up a cache of good fortune that one day will be returned to me. While we might not say it, that's exactly what we think. But what Kierkegaard is saying is, well, yes, but actually no. God's already given you everything you need and want. So pause and take a second. Take a deep breath. You, right now, as it is, have everything God has ever promised you. It's already there. He owes you nothing else. In fact, if you were to die today, you have everything in your possession now that God has promised you. He hasn't promised you a car, a house, a wife, a husband, food, water. Going back to the apostles, all of them, except one, died a horrific death with nearly no money. Peter didn't die wondering if he should have liquidated his 401k. Paul wasn't concerned about real estate tax because they really didn't have that much money. And this isn't a statement on humanity's living conditions either. When we reduplicate our actions towards someone else, we don't gain an extra blessing. No, we just get an opportunity to better understand the blessings that we already have. The better we understand how to love others, the greater we can come to know the love that God has shown us. Now, something that needs to be brought up that's essential to this idea of love is that it's not simply doing things for other people. After all, Kierkegaard would agree that the mere action is exhausting. And anyone who just wants to do everything for other people will quickly realize that it's impossible. So he gives us this idea of presupposing love. The presupposition of love is basically trusting that just as you're trying to love someone else, they're trying to love you too as well. To presuppose love is not just to hope for the best things in someone else, but to trust that they hope for the best in you as well. And there's no better example of this than Andy from Parks and Rec. Patreons of the show, or anyone under the age of 25, will more than likely be familiar with this lovable character played by Chris Pratt. Now, Andy is the epitome of the presupposition of love. Andy's in his 20s. He's homeless, he plays in a band, and he's incredibly stupid. But despite all of this, he's possibly one of the most impactful characters in the show because he acts as a catalyst for the development of every other character by presupposing love in everyone else. Beginning with Tom, a narcissistic, self-absorbed entrepreneur has dreams of being the owner of a club. The entire episode is dedicated to his search for $10,000 so he can buy shares. After gathering two, three, four thousand $4,000 from various people, he realizes he's $1,000 short. With three minutes left on the runtime of the episode, Tom sits down at the shoeshine stand where Andy's been working at defeat, knowing he'll never be a part owner. He explains his defeat to Andy, who simply just gives him $1,000, knowing that it was for him to rent a room so he wouldn't be homeless. This is Tom's first opportunity to be an entrepreneur, 
and is the starting point for him to become a solid character throughout the show. While this detail seems easy to overlook and forget about, it's the turning point for that character. Now whether it was intended or not, people view this as the typical stupidity that Andy displays throughout the show. However, it's much more than a simple gag. It is a key aspect of Andy's character. That is, the presupposition that Tom has the best intentions. Another example is the transformation of the character April, a typical angsty teen that embodies negativity and apathy. She's radically transformed into one of the heroes of the entire story. Through the constant presupposition that despite the dark appearances and behavior, April's nature was love. Now Andy's character is, as Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky would put it, the idiot. Now this in no way is to be taken as an insult. Rather, to Dostoevsky, the highest form of flattery one can give a Christian. To be able to believe in all things, yet never be deceived. Because Kierkegaard, love is exactly that. To believe all things, yet never be deceived. To explain this idea, Kierkegaard draws on two contrasts, and it looks like this. Quote, love believes everything, yet is never to be deceived. Amazing. To believe nothing in order to never be deceived, this seems to make sense. For how could a man ever be able to be deceived who believes in nothing? But to believe in everything, and thereby, as it were, to throw oneself away, fair game for all deception and all deceivers, yet precisely in this way, assure oneself infinitely against every deception. So which is better? To truly never believe in anything? Now you might think of some old grandma who believes everything, who gets an email from a Nigerian prince claiming he needs a thousand dollars to return to his palace, but that he'll repay her plus interest. And that's not what Kierkegaard is trying to say. If you ever get an email from a Nigerian prince, just delete it, I promise you, it's not actually the prince of Nigeria. Now he's saying that when you trust, that by loving someone through believing that they're capable of love towards anyone, you're not believing that they won't necessarily hurt you or not live up to your expectations. No, rather, that God will use this for his intentions, even if you don't necessarily get to see the results of what God has planned for them. Another way Kierkegaard puts it is this, quote, Can a child deceive its parents? No. The child deceives himself. There is only the illusion, consequently a deception, the fuzziness of short-sightedness, which makes it appear to the child and to the one who has no better understanding than the child, as if there were the child who deceived the parents, alas, whereas the poor child essentially deceives himself. This is how Christ loved Judas, who betrayed him, or the Pharisees, who had him killed. He believes all things, and even in death, was not deceived. Now an enormous aspect of love comes to the idea that love covers a multitude of sins. Now to say that love covers a multitude of sins means exactly what it seems like. Just as Christ's death covered our sins, so too does love cover the sins of our neighbors to us. 
we love to rejoice in the fact that Christ's blood covers our sins. And we ought to. We're cleansed. We're no longer in bondage to our sin. But it's most important to remember. And no better way to remember by reciprocating that love to our neighbor. And Kierkegaard goes through and he lists us four points on how we ought to do this. The first is by silence. Kierkegaard emphasizes that by sharing someone else's sins, we're multiplying that sin and causing corruption and the spread of gossip. And also, people seldom share others' sins not in attempts of personal gain or to extort their neighbor. And this one's tricky. So carrying on the concept of not falling into self-deception, when was the last time you shared someone else's sin under the guise of caring for the truth? Do you hear Debbie's husband got a DUI? Yeah, that's why he doesn't drive himself to work. Oh my goodness. What? It's true. What's true is it's gossip. And we're multiplying their sin. And it's not loving the neighbor. Kierkegaard says, quote, Even through the multiplicity remains just as great, whether I am silent about it or not. When I am silent about it, I nevertheless do my part by concealing. And further, do we not say that rumors tend to grow? We mean thereby that rumors tend to make the blame greater than it really is. End quote. The second is by mitigating explanation. This is to utilize the explanation to be lenient towards the individual. A backstory or an explanation for the poor decision made. This is an attempt to relieve the individual of the guilt owed to them out of love. Did you hear Debbie's husband got a DUI? Yeah, that's why he doesn't drive himself to work. Yeah, his father passed away the day before he got pulled over 0.01 over the legal limit. Now that doesn't excuse Debbie's husband. No, he broke the law. But what purpose does it serve in amplifying his guilt? We are to treat gently with our neighbor's sins, with forgiveness and compassion. Not excusing, but allowing a mitigating context to relieve the shame. Kierkegaard says, quote, Should it not be just as satisfying and just as engaging through perseverance with what would be called exceptionally based conduct to discover that it was something quite different, something quite well-intentioned. Let the judges appointed by the state, let the detectives labor to discover guilt and crimes, let the rest of us enjoin to be neither judges nor detectives. God has rather called us to love, consequently, to the hiding of the multiplicity of sins with the help of a mitigating explanation. The third is forgiveness. This is to forgive the sins of the individual and by doing so not believing it exists. Just as God by forgiving us got rid of our sin, by forgiving other sins we remove the need to see it. Just like faith requires that we believe in something we can't see, Forgiveness requires that we ignore or choose not to see what can be seen or neglect the need to recognize it. And finally, that love prevents sin from coming into being. 
This is to help one another avoid sin to begin with by removing opportunities where you know the individual might fall into sin. We look at all these things that love is and that love isn't. And we think to ourselves, how is this possible? How can someone go on doing all of this, never hoping to gain anything out of it? And that's just the paradox. It's a view that shifts. Because love abides. It's never ceasing. When someone has money, they can lose their wealth. Where it's no longer. They don't have any more money. But nonetheless, at one point, they had wealth. With love, that's not necessarily true. If you lose love, then you have to come to realize that you never loved in the first place. But this form of love isn't based on giving or doing things. Even if you can't give anything or do anything, love is based on mercy. To give mercy is far more valuable and perfect than to give any action or thing. This is the way temporality speaks, well-intentioned, and it cannot speak very well otherwise. On the other hand, the Eternal says, there is only one danger, that is, mercifulness is not practiced. And even if aid were given in every need, there is still no certainty that it was done in mercifulness. If this is not the case, this wretchedness, that mercifulness was not practiced at all, would be no greater than all temporal deed. End quote. This merciful love is redemptive, and it's what gives the story of Christ such power. It wasn't that the teachings of Christ somehow convinced the hearts of murderers and drug dealers and rapists. No, it was love and mercy. So we can look back and ponder at all these things, and we can look at it in two ways. We can look at it in the sense of an overwhelming task, and it is. Or we can stop the process all of these things that have been given to us. That Christ hasn't asked us to do anything that he hasn't already done for us. I mean, we really can't begin to comprehend this type of love that's been poured out for us. It's like trying to describe the love a parent has for their children without having any children. God is love, and by being love is nothing short of all of these things. And the only way to truly understand this is to aim to love as he's loved us. And the more we master this eternal love, the more we're going to be able to experience his infinite love for us. So you've made it through works of love, and I hope you've enjoyed it. And if you have, we have more content coming on anxiety, faith, and the meaning of life. If you haven't enjoyed it, I would urge you to try a later episode. See if there's any topics that interest you. And as always, thank you for questioning why you believe what you believe.